Hello, and welcome to Becoming, hosted by Lisa Loveland and Costa Hansis. This podcast is focused on helping you become the best version of yourself. And no matter where you are on that journey, we hope to bring you one step closer with every episode. Now, please join me in welcoming your hosts, Lisa Loveland and Costa Hansis. Hello, and welcome back to Becoming. In today's episode, we have Dr. Trevor Cashy. Dr. Trevor Cashy is a biochemist, a philosopher, and uh, he is the founder of Trevor Cashy Nutrition. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. We How are, are you? We're, we're good. Excellent. Great. Uh, we haven't been on in a while. We've been busy with uh, a few other projects. So um, we were talking this morning about how excited we are to have somebody like you on the show. I said to Costa, we, I could talk with people like this all day long, like come over for dinner, let's hang out. Um, so you've got some really, um, really good information and you present it in your own style, which is um, atypical of a lot of you know, people that you'll hear and you make so much sense. And both Cost and I love, what do we call them life hacks? There's no real hack, right? You have to put in the commitment and you have to have the discipline. But what's so neat is when somebody takes what doesn't turn something on its head, but just adds a little bit of a twist and you have that aha moment of, oh my God, I get it. It's that simple. The onus is on me but you have a lot of information to share with our audience that can help them get to that point. Um, so I know you don't like small talk, but would you mind just giving us a little bit of a elevator pitch or override version of you and what you do? Okay, so I will, I will start out by pointing out some of my areas of weirdness. So you mentioned I, I present things in an atypical way. Part of that just has to do with to throw myself under the bus here, like a boomer status. I actually just started using social media like two weeks ago. And so I actually have zero, I have zero knowledge if anybody does anything. Uh, so that, so it, and insofar as now I just act like myself on the internet. Okay. So just to clarify, I act exactly the same in person as I do online because I know nothing different. Okay. Just out of pure ignorance of how to behave. Uh, <laughs> so I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, I have a, sort of a strange academic upbringing background. I started doing research in cancer at around age 16. I had a really pretty awesome mentor that opened some doors for me after getting annoyed uh, by the amount of questions I asked. He goes, ask these people questions. I said, okay. So I, I started doing lung cancer research at uh, age 16 or so. I ended up finishing my first degree in biochemistry uh, at 18 and then uh, went on to do a doctoral degree in, in biochemistry as well, uh, that I, I completed the requirements for that around the age of 22. So a lot of these things, like I, I started a little bit earlier and I ended a little bit earlier and went through a lot of different sort of research phases. I started out in cancer, moved to nutraceuticals, spent some time in biophysics, uh, and then ended up spending time in clinical nutrition and now uh, focusing a lot more into really, I guess I could just call it behavior science, uh, that I have some research projects going on right now as, as an adjunct of sorts. So that to give you sort of the, the background from the academic side, I, I started you know, in the basement, looking at, looking at single cells, to now on the top of a building, looking at the whole person, and it has turned into an interesting situation of going from, from that to this. And in the meantime, 
Um, I, I operated as a competitive athlete because I had a strange relationship with my father. I'll leave it at that. As far as we had very little in common, he came into my life uh, in my more formative years. And since we had zero in common, we started lifting weights. And then my strange obsession with science stuff and then his interest in fitness very soon ended up sort of intercalating, to use a biochemistry word that I like, okay, <laughs> that uh, I ended up screwing with enough things, doing competitions, doing well enough that people start asking me questions and then I'd answer and they'd say, whoa, those sound like funny words. And I said, well, what makes them funny words? In any case, it got to a point where how did I get into the, the whole coaching sort of scene? Uh, it really, it really came to me on pure accident uh, because I'll tell you the truth. I spent full-time job, just like talking with people, doing stuff like this, helping out wherever I can until someone said, Hey, can I pay you for this? And I went, you can do that. You can do that. It, like actually how it started. <laughs> and then I, you know, I did a few interviews and, and things like this. And uh, I just feel so grateful that people, you know, hadn't would inquire on their own because of these strange things I knew about strange topics and had, you know, limited, limited success in the, in the sport uh, and strength culture endeavors that I had that has sort of set me up into this position where uh, I could then spend some time overseas. So I spent some time out there in the Middle East. I'll keep the countries, I'll just say Middle East. I ended up working uh, for the, I don't know, I've had maybe 350 plus fight athletes that I looked over for the 2016 Olympics for Rio de Janeiro. And I, I operated more or less as a physiologist. Uh, so I had a, I had a lot of, I had a, a lot of authority, autonomy over what I did. So of course, nutrition went over part of that. Some of it went over supplementation. Some of it went over prescription. Some of it went around uh, blood work and other sorts of interesting things about their environment. And so uh, had a wonderful time over there. Glad I did it. Terrifying experience. Glad mm -hmm. I did it during a time of my life where I just said YOLO. Uh, and so I got lots of interesting experience and a great education doing that, working with so many people at one time for the better part of an Olympic cycle. Wow. Um, speaking different languages, I think in the barracks that I lived in, we had six different languages flying around <laughs> and uh, still managed because uh, thankfully math and science uh, transcend, transcend nationality and culture, at least in the context of sports, <laughs> yeah. uh, where in the part of the world I went to. And uh, they really valued what they did, and it turned into a rewarding experience for me there. And then I I moved to Florida from the from the Middle Eastern zones. I spent most of my time in Azerbaijan, but moved around quite a bit in there, and did an in-person operation for a while, where I got to have I get emotional even thinking about this. I got to work with a child. Aww. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, sorry. Woo. No, no. Every time. Yeah. Every no, time. No. Uh, I got to work with him and his parents for a little while. He had a gnarly medical condition, which I'll leave to myself. But basically, a few weeks later, he came running into the office and gave me a hug. He said, Dr. Cashy, my tummy doesn't hurt anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. And that just like, we have people arguing with each other to the death about like, you need to have one more bite of chicken after the vernal equinox on your third set of leg extensions. And like, this kid has like three inches of intestines left, you know? <laughs> and, and so... <laughs> that sort of really kicked me right on my head and yeah. helped me a lot and as far and working with the other extreme like people that have won gold medals that put this just under their religion okay like in an area of the world where that matters a lot you know that 
to the to the equal opposite extreme, and then all sorts of other interesting situations in between. So we spoke a little bit before about how I like to work in the extreme sides because I hold the position that if you have an operation that works in both extremes, then it probably also does okay in the center as well. Yeah. Uh, versus if you have something that works in the middle, you really just have another thing that works some of the time. I, I love it. And th this is why we're so excited to talk to you. And we're going to get to this uh, cool. guys views later and cool. later in the, um, the conversation because uh, Trevor just has amazing ways to communicate and puts a, a real important emphasis on words because word, words matter, how we say it, the tone that we say it, and um, it can really change, change yes. dynamics. I was going to say change people's lives, but changing dynamics is the first start. And then that changes people's lives. Yes. I, I um, take a very strong semantic orientation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And having healthy bodies. So it, it all, it all, it all comes together, right? We need, we need to have healthy bodies. Like we need to respect our bodies. Poor little things. We've put them through hell. They yeah, still keep, they still keep ticking and we still ask more of them yes. without giving them the love and attention that they need. So I, you know, we've, I'm, I'm, you know, over 50. So I've, you know, got all those things that happen when you're over 50 and your body doesn't work the same way and it's hard to lose weight and, and all, all of these things. And mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, everyone's got a different thing to tell you. So I've decided now that, okay, I, I'm just going to do what I think works, what feels good. And I'm going to be, I'm going to have a different relationship with my body yes. where I'm going to treat it like I would treat a child where I would love it. I wouldn't shame it or tell it it needs to do better. And when I'm actually in control of what I'm doing to it. So, um, and Cusset also is always looking for different ways to increase his health and, and fitness and weight and all of So we're, we're all here on the same page. Um, and so we'd love to hear your take on, um, on your, on your fitness program and, and your, 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 your diet structures and, and what you think. There was a lot of questions there, but um, well, why don't we start with what do Hold you on. think? Tell, is me the what problem, tell me what problem you want to solve. Oh, well, I don't want this to be all about me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. Um, Cord, how, do, how, do, how does a, a woman over 50 with uh, stop the secretion of um, cortisol, that, that belly fat? Okay, good question. Uh, I will... I start out by saying that first, the, I, I look at the level of, of how much medicalizing a person has done to a problem, okay? So you mentioned cortisol and secretion, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things that may, may affect you, maybe not. Uh, I, I can tell you straight on that by going right to having the agency of an endocrine organ, you limit your own capacity to make changes as far as like, well, if my brain does these things, then I have to change my brain and you can't change your brain. So good luck. Okay. So I care now that you have a problem you want to solve. You have assigned a cause to that problem. The cause that you have assigned, I will put to the side, frankly. I just know that you have a problem you want to solve. You have assigned a cause to it. And this may or may not affect the way that you operate on a daily basis to either uh, contribute to the issue or to help resolve it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I try and take causation and throw it out the window initially and take the approach of let's look at the person instead of looking at your 
pineal gland or looking at your hypothalamus, okay? <laughs> so this falls into what, what a lot of very easy trap people fall into called the myriological fallacy, where people will assign functions uh, of behavior or things that they do to, to specific parts of their body. For example, does the eye see? No, I take the position that the person sees. If you plucked an eyeball out of someone's head and put it on the table, does that eyeball see anything? No. That's great. No, okay. So people will say, well, you're scared because of this part of your amygdala and, and you get rewarded because of your limbic, like does the limbic system get rewarded? No, the person gets rewarded. The person gets scared. The person, like, so looking at these things in the context of what actually happens in real life versus sort of projecting this sort of over-reductionist uh, jargon that gets used in, in technical papers really distracts and confuses from the interventions that end up making life better. So do I care about your cortisol level? I mean, if, if, if your body, if, if, you if your heart started failing, you would, you would know, okay? <laughs> Okay, if, if your body started to atrophy at a rate that, that like you would know if you made too much cortisol. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. okay. Now, from that sort of viewpoint, we can then look at, well, how do you live your life? What do you do on a daily basis? What do you do? So I look at first, how do you already do the stuff you do? Because I take the position you made it this far, Lisa. You do something right. Okay. Right. <laughs> and so I, I give two shits what you do wrong. Okay. Those things will end up solving themselves, especially the idea of rightness and wrongness, because everything you do, you do for a reason and you learn to do it from somewhere. So at one point, everything you do, I take this position and I take credit so I can also take blame. Everything you do, you learn to do, and you learn to do it because it benefited you at some time in some way. Yeah. Now, what benefited you now might differ, what benefited you then might differ from what benefits you now, okay? And then that discrepancy in context ends up causing a lot of people's problems. So do you have anything wrong with you? I would argue not, you have everything right. You made it this far. Some things you do now might cause more hassle than they did then, and looking at those discrepancies then helps us to decide what sort of thing we can do to make a change. So can I change the structure of your adrenal glands? No. Can I like, can we do anything to your bodily organs in any direct way? No, okay. We can do plenty of things that might improve your organ function as a side effect, okay. So in that regard, from a, from a philosophical, uh, teleological efficient final cause, you wanna pull Aristotle into this, okay? Uh, it makes more sense, in my opinion, to say, what can we change that will solve your problem as a side effect and make that the goal? Instead of, I wanna fix my endocrine system as a goal, what can you really do to change that? On a day-to-day -day basis, we can do things that might improve endocrine function on accident or as a side effect. Therefore, making that the outcome measure ends up distracting from the sort of things we can do to help. And so by assessing your behavior, 
uh, on a day-to-day -day basis where I actually lump a lot of things into behavior. To me, people people like to separate thoughts, feelings, and actions, and not like I it, I consider it all behaving. If you do it, I consider it behavior. Releasing insulin, thinking, feeling, like it all lumps into behavior to me. And so when I say look at your behavior, it might mean like how does your body behave? How does your pancreas behave under this sort of situation? Just to clarify uh, yeah. how I use behavior. If an organism does it, it behaves. Okay, like just, if you have a problem with that, please tell me then I can try and work around it. I just consider it all. If you do a thing, you behave. Yeah. And then we can just specify the type of behavior to clarify. Oh, looking at how you behave on a daily basis, even just yourself, you start invoking a little bit of, a little bit of what some people call the Hawthorne effect, where by virtue of you observing yourself as a third party, you go, well, I did a dumb thing there. You might start seeing as you, you keep track of what you eat and when, you keep track of when you go to bed, how long you sleep, how often you wake up, you keep track of the things that you tell yourself. You start observing yourself behave. And uh, I, I actually basically, I more or less define self-awareness in this way from a utilitarian standpoint that a person has self-awareness when they act as the speaker and the listener at the same time, okay? Oh, I like that. Yes, yeah. I, me too, thank you. <laughs> I use it as a guiding <laughs> principle of mine of like, self-awareness, well, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, yeah, it, means, yeah, yeah. it means when I say this thing, other people nod and smile, so I have a, an increased probability of saying it again next time is what it means. <laughs> so in reality, operant conditioning aside, uh, I see self-awareness as I, I talk to myself and I listen to. And so this means that you can observe what you do in real time. And then also observe what you do post talk after. Yep. Okay. And so the, the more context that you have, because I subscribe to us behaving in context, like the environment matters, how we talk to ourselves matter, how we interact with other people matter, that one thing you do here, you might do it here because it helped you there. And finding the discrepancy in the context will then help us figure out, okay, what sort of things can we change on purpose? Because some situations look just similar enough that we behave in a way that helped us there. Mm -hmm. that conflicts with what we do now. Yep. A classic example, if, if somebody else's kid acts out, you might treat them like your kid. Okay, as a classic example of, well, I behave in this way and it helped me in this situation, I behave this way right now and it worked against me. Does that mean you did anything wrong? To me, it just means you did what you learned to do. Okay, and so now we have a similar enough situation of a child of the same age, of the same size, acting in a similar way. It makes perfect sense for it to prompt you to now behave in, in a way that has, has elicited benefits for you there, all yeah. right? And now we can look after, so basic things we look at, we'll look at sleep. We actually like, I like step count as the basic sort of basal activity level, uh, sleep, what you eat, how much, walking around, um, your explanatory style, as in like when you, when you write us love notes and you write diary things to yourself and you, you analyze your own results, what sort of language do you use? Like, do you assign causality to the problems that you have? And if you do assign causality, how do you assign causality? Okay, mm -hmm. because those sorts of things, 
in my opinion, again, I'll take credit so I take blame, uh, affect how you end up behaving. So if, if, you take, if you take agency, like you said a little while ago, away from yourself and onto someone else or somewhere else, valid or not, it probably affects the way that you resolve the problem or not. So taking a little bit of responsibility in a utilitarian way, instead of looking for fault or blame or causation or intentionality or all that sort of stuff that we kind of get lost in, it really comes down to, I have a problem. Maybe I caused it, maybe they caused it, maybe the universe caused it, maybe the flying spaghetti monster caused it. I still have a problem. Right. Whether somebody or something else caused it, I still gotta resolve it. And so to me, the blame or the causation or the intentionality, that sort of stuff, I kick it out the window. Uh, taking responsibility for a problem has nothing to do with taking blame for it. And I think people conflate those two terms. Yeah. I have a problem. I will resolve the problem. Does that mean I get, I, I, I now take blame and get punishment for this sort of thing? What does that resolve? Right. So I have a problem. It behooves me to resolve it unless I sit around and wait for something else to resolve it for me. And, and really assigning external agency or causality just makes it easier to give yourself permission to sit around and whine, whether you caused it or not, fitting the facts or not. Right. So I look at, I have this problem I want to resolve. In this case, let's say we have a, an issue with body weight. Thankfully with body weight, it follows basic fundamental biological principles that that vary in their range and stay steady in their application. And so this in principle just means some people have more hassles than others in, in making good or behaving in such a way to, to, to lower their body weight, they still do the same behaviors to make it happen. So you might say, you, the royal you, someone might have a screwed up thyroid, okay? Let's say they have a really low metabolic rate, whatever that means to most people. You still do the same stuff to lower your body weight. Whether you, whether you have a high metabolic rate or a lower one, you still do the exact same things. And by changing the agency, by, by screwing with the causality, by looking at intentionality, by, by employing all these sort of popular psychological methods on, on external sources, you can make it easy to convince yourself that you have to do something different than other people do. Really, if you, if you subscribe to, well, the, the input and output of a system and the net gain and loss, okay, people believe it with their bank accounts, so uh, that you have stuff going in, you have stuff coming out, and if the stuff going out uh, equals less than the stuff going in, then you have stuff happening in the center, all right? And whether you have very small amount going in, a very small amount going out, very large amount going in, very large amount going, like that stuff, to me, has like has very little has very little effect on how you end up how you end up changing what you have going on in the center. So if you have if you really do have a very low metabolic rate, well that just means that you would move around a little bit more and eat a little bit less. Does that create hassle? Of course it does. Of course it creates hassle. And it creates hassle relative to the people that could eat more and move less. Right. And now that hassle generates a lot of these emotional disturbances where we give ourselves permission to despair and say, screw it, I give up. We, we catch a case of the I can't stand it-itis. 
I like to call it. We start demanding, this shouldn't have to be this way. They can do whatever they want. I really have to get these results or else. And then we start dramatizing. I never get to eat whatever they want. They always get to have whatever. They can do anything and lose weight. And from there, we start to we start to down like what a like those skinny bitches over there. I hate them. Look at me. I screw up every day. And then that starts to turn into despairing. Like why bother do this anymore? That's so true. Okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes total sense. So in, in, uh, in Japan and talking to people in general, I label those as the four major distortions and I put them in that order. They can happen in any order and they can also have an implicit and an explicit, like they have implicit or explicitly. But basically I see this at least in, uh, I'll just call it middle America, like basically the, the standard sort of general United States um, uh, language pattern of people disturbing their own emotions and then giving themselves permission to act silly falls under that sort of structure. We yeah. start making demands, which some people might call beliefs or virtues or whatever, like I have to lose weight. In, in any case, you, you have this implied sort of or else. Like right. I really should do this. Do, oh, like, I hate should you? I know, I know, yeah. Need to, I must, I have to. Or yeah. Else. Or because see, like if you can say something and then like comfortably add or else at the end, then you've set yourself up for a, for a really emotional disturbance. Okay, and because that like as soon as you as soon as you set that that Jehovian must that commandingness of the universe to bend to your will, like I really have to get these results. Well, if you had to, what would happen? So the these sorts of false sort of dichotomous contingencies that we set up for ourselves now really make it easy to upset ourselves further. So we make this demand, I really must lose weight or else, or else what? Or else I'll start dramatizing. This never works. I hate everyone. It's horrible, terrible, awful. Then we start to downing. There's something wrong with me. I'm an idiot. I suck. There's something wrong with my brain. My adrenal glands have blown up. I hate everything about myself and my body. Look at those skinny bitches, et cetera. And then, then it compounds into the despairing. This this will never work. Why bother? I may as well give up. I can't stand it anymore, etc. So I, at at first, I, I look for just those like the explanatory style gives us a lot of information as far as yes. like, do you set yourself up to to get whacked out? Okay, when you get when you encounter something frustrating. Because if you use those sorts of language patterns, which frankly got baked into daily conversation, your frustration tolerance immediately goes into the crapper. Because if you go to a restaurant and they, you, you order something and they give you the wrong, they give you something different than you order, you say, this restaurant's been awful. You're the worst server ever. I'm never coming here again. What a horrible experience. Like, well, well what, what makes the tidal wave wiping out the small village? That sounds pretty horrible to me. And I think you would consider it horrible too. And so now you make this obvious equivalence. And if you consider mass death horrible and then consider getting pancakes when you ordered French toast horrible, can you see the chance of this affecting your emotions at, at least in a graded way? Okay. Yeah. And so now that leads us to how do we manage something like this to talk about your, your, communi your, your priority of discussing communication. Uh, I just go right to... Uh, the, the violent sort of mantra, stick to the fucking facts, right? Like that. Did you, did anything factual just come out of your face? 
if you actually state the facts, then you end up limiting how much how dramatic you can make yourself, how much you can down someone or yourself, which just automatically goes to a judgment. Are you a bad person? Well, does that fit the facts? How does that even like how does that even make sense as a factual statement? Maybe you did something that somebody rejects. <laughs> okay. I can't take this anymore. Will you currently take it? So we have evidence that you can. Okay. I have to do this. I need to do this. Well, do you? You would have done it if you needed to. What sort of contingency do we have here? So we can start disputing this sort of distorted language by just sticking to the fucking facts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so hashtag SFF, whatever you want to call it. I like to, I like to pull irreverence into this because it helps us all to remember like, Man, I should have just stuck to the, see, you can even get into demanding this right there. You can demand that you stick to the facts. So it gets really, uh, it can get tricky because it gets so baked in. So again, we look at what do you already do? And then of the things that you already do, how do you describe it to yourself and other people? And how does that correlate to the sort of problem that you want to solve? And a I will even say an approximate 100% of the time, the things you say and what you do can make your problem better or worse. And in some situations where you have medical conditions like the one you described, or maybe you do have some sort of issue with your endocrine system, even under circumstances like that, you probably do something to exacerbate it. Mm -hmm. And so even if it just means taking a problem and making it less shitty, that means it's a very real increase in quality of life. Yeah. And, and so from a framing standpoint, um, getting better often just means having a better quality of life relative to this other point. Yeah. So I try and integrate things. I mean, I give you the really the philosophical uh, approach. But, but I love it. It makes sense. Practice, yeah. it, you know, you can make it more system, systematized than that, okay? Yeah just to give you an idea of like how and why I, I, I operate the way I do, uh, do I care to, do I, do I care to solve your problem? Strictly speaking, no, I, I care to help you make your life better. And then your problem solves itself. Right. Yeah. And, and, and obsessing over the problem, you end up doing this and making it really difficult to look at other things that can contribute. Okay. Yeah. And really easy. And then demanding that you have to solve this problem or else you can never do anything with your life ever again. And then I suck. And then why bother living? Because your whole life sucks now. Why does your whole life suck? Because you spend your whole life obsessing over this one thing that really takes up like 1% of your time. Yeah. So again, by sticking to the facts, we can like, do you really hate your job, for instance? Well, really, you hate this one thing about your job that takes 30 minutes a week. And so out of the 40 hours now, okay, you have 5% to issue with your job, I think about close enough, okay? And you're obsessing over doing that thing that takes 30 minutes before you do it, hating it while you do it, and then obsessing over the next time you have to do it has now made your whole job bad. When really you just have a very small percentage of the overall job you have a problem with. Really, if someone said, I love 95% of my job, who would complain about that? Right. <laughs> so right. Look at just again, we can state the facts of like, you hate this thing. It takes less than 5% of your total amount of time you work per week. Then it stands to reason you hate 4% of your job. Right. That means you like, or at very least have neutral disposition towards 96% of your job. 
so again, with the explanatory style of like, I hate my job, I have to do this thing. When I don't do it, I obsess about it. When I do do it, I obsess about it. And now I'm burnt out. Yeah. So like, just to, I can end up rambling a little bit, just to see how these sort of um, language patterns, at least tell, tell a convenient story of, of how we might behave different ways in different situations based off of the sort of language we use to explain it to ourselves and other people. Yeah. It sounds like to me, which is like a, a huge, me and Lisa talk about aggravation. I've, uh, I went through a big transformation in high school, lost about 70 pounds uh, when I was like 14. And that just started my health and fitness journey. And it's, it's evolved over to like surface level things to like now getting more into the biohacking and the science behind it. And pretty much what I think you're saying, uh, what I interpret from what you're saying too is, and what is my aggravation with a lot of whether that's nutritionists or trainers or hormone optimization people is you, you go there, they give you a basic blood test and then it's, here's a list of 10 things to do. And it's like the aggravate and then check with us in six weeks later. And the aggravation for, for me is like, wait, like you barely know enough data for me. You don't have the necessary data to even make a decision. It's just one test. You're not even asking me, what do you eat? How's your sleep? How's your function? How's this? How's that? And it's like, I always like, I was talking to Lisa. I was like, if we ever have like a, a, a business or got into this space, it's like, okay, like you come visit. And then it's like, let's see what's diagnosed, see what's going on. And maybe because people are very, uh, they need something too. So maybe like give them a little, Hey, take this supplement or implement this. And then but like, give them sort some sort of like tracker, like a whoop or an Apple watch and then monitor their sleep and stuff like that. And then six weeks later, come back and see you have a better baseline with their sleep. You know how they're, how much activity they're getting. And then take that and see if that root cause was the issue see rather than just like uh, address 10 things versus maybe that just one thing was the issue. Now you're taking 10 things and you don't know, is it the ninth thing that's working? Is it the first thing that's working? Who knows? And then never ending cycle. And I, I think your approach to it's really interesting because it, you need to take that philosophical approach because it's not as easy as 30 days, eat less calories, weight loss, you're going to lose 20 pounds. There's, there's differences, there's variables that you need to take into account for. So uh, I appreciate like that, that outlook on dieting, fitness. Right. Yeah. Because then it's sustainable, yeah. right? Because you're, yeah. you're changing the way you're, you're thinking. Uh, in principle, yes. Uh, you know, you can, you can throw all sorts of wrenches, wrenches into the mix. Um, to your point about, or question about how I got into this, I got into this on accident because I spent my whole life as a scientist up to that point. I, 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 I would just, all right. <laughs> And, and then the, the, the business as a business operated like that as a byproduct. And really what, Costa? Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, I read more than I speak. So uh, Costa brings up the point of like, he, he talks about business models. And so what they do makes a lot of sense if you wanna run a business. And, and it, it really difficult to, from a practicality standpoint, how do I run a business that also takes the person's best interest into account to help change them over time, other than just using that language as part of my marketing to increase the amount of, to increase my lead flow, to grow my lead flow. And so Costa brings up a very legitimate logistical issue on a business, on a, on the business side, because let us say that uh, the businesses did take this sort of approach. How much more time and energy would they have to spend on that person? How much more time and energy would that person have to spend? And then how much more would they have to charge? And so you get into a very real, like you said, you wanted to avoid politics. And now we get into a very real, like operations issue with like, how do we scale something that does work for the individual person on a population? And so 
from an ethical standpoint, really, do they do the best thing? No. Does it do something? Probably. And so then you, you have a, you know, you have a moral or ethical code of where do you draw the line between what, what do we consider good enough and uh, how in the same way can you serve, can you serve the customer that comes to your business to their expectations? Because I, I get into tips with people I work with all the time because they want something uh, different than, than what I provide because they might just want the give me a blood work and then send me a, give me a supplement and kick my ass out the door. And I go, no. I care about you, so we'll do this stuff instead, <laughs> okay? And yeah. those sorts of things happen, you know, because as a scientist, right, I take a different approach to these things. I care that you resolve the problem that you come up with when really that person just might want to get the blood test and supplement and leave. Yeah. And so at that point, like, you, I just like to play devil's advocate with most situations because it turns real easy to... You know, we can we can demonize people that minimize the work and maximize the charging. We can we can vilify or we can um, vindicate people who spend a lot of time and energy on on people on an individual level. And as as my grandpa would say, you have an ass for every seat. And as my dad would say, you got a tool for every job as a carpenter. And so, it really just comes down to if people continue to show up, then they get value. Yeah. And so if we have a problem with someone else's business, that just means that we get value from something else. Yep. So I, I try and take that sort of perspective because I can, I can also get very irritated. Like you just give blood work and sell people $2,000 worth of supplements to kick their asses <laughs> out the door. Uh, and I bet a lot of people go in to get just that. Yeah. Right. Especially, for you know, like whether I agree with it or not, <laughs> they still get value out of it. And that just helped that helps stabilize my own emotions about something that I might consider sketchy right i think that's the the scalability of the uh and i have this book right at my desk too but in terms of uh men in terms of hormone optimization it's like you go to the doctor or clinic at low energy this this that and then all they want is this and they don't want to look at anything else and if they don't get that being that this being testosterone if they don't get that it's much more beneficial for the a clinic just to be like cool oh yeah low testosterone here's some testosterone client takes it and they feel amazing or right, i love this place it they both get value, then, then, then do they do something wrong? Yeah. <laughs> that, that just turns into, you know, a, another sort of ethical question uh, to, your, to your point that like, um, what, what problem does the person really want to solve? And I, you know, I talked to a three-year-old, I talked to a hundred-year-old, I talked to a CEO. I, I, I just, I start with that question because it gets really easy for us to like, we start making a bunch of noise. We start telling all these stories. We start assigning causality. We start freaking ourselves out, even just trying to explain what we want to get out. And really, just what problem do you want to solve? Right. And and that ha getting comfortable with having that conversation, then you can you can find the person right out, and you can qualify them to determine whether you know they would fit with the sort of program that you have. Because some people enough people, when you ask them the question of what problem do you want to solve? And they say, I want to get testosterone. Then I can refer them to somebody that will get that to provide them at the value they want. And so, and, and so that just, again, I, I like to take a devil's advocate approach. I'd say, I have this opinion. Okay. And if you still, if you still decide you want to do this or that, then I have, uh, I have people that I trust to help fulfill what you want over here. Does that follow? Totally. It, it's actually a great uh, transition too into, into the programs and what you actually offer. Tell us a little bit about what your kickstart program is. Un understood. 
So you can, you can describe it a, a few different ways. I use kickstart as a rather diplomatic term for get your shit together, okay? Uh, or get your act together, I guess, whatever sort of term you want to use, because a lot of people love the idea of getting one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I also provide. And I noticed that with a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching sort of interactions, which, uh, which Costa, yes, I know, I know a Costa. So thank you for your patience. Yeah, Steve, no, you, you nailed it. Spelled the same. <laughs> it is, okay. Yeah. Uh, that uh, a lot of people will, will kind of bleed value. Uh, because it takes them a while to, to, to turn coachable and to work with the coach in a way that, that helps both the coach and the client. And, and the Kickstart program, uh, also according to the background, I consider it sort of like a client certification process where you learn the basic skills, you, you expose yourself to different environments, you get a handle on your own daily contexts that you behave in. And then when you do have a one-on-one -on -one coach, which, which then we offer after you complete the Kickstart program, you hit the ground running with value immediately. Instead of spending that three or four months trying to figure out how do I even make this coaching thing work for me? And you'll find out that most one-on-one -on -one coaching environments, people drop off in the first few months because instead of integrating uh, the coach's advice, they interject it. They take what the coach says and then they go whoop, and they just try and slap it right on top of all the other stuff they already do. And before you know it, you get a case of the I can't stand it itis. All this extra shit I have to do, you know, this, this guy keeps telling me to do all this stuff. I never get any, any results, right? I must get my money's worth. So again, we can, we can integrate these language patterns all day long. Before you know it, why bother? So I, I, I turn this kickstart program into something twofold. One, to get you aware of what you do, uh, to set you up with the skills to make progress on your own. And by virtue of doing that, you make progress as a side effect. And so by learning the skills to make progress, you end up making progress on accident. Does that follow? Totally. Then after you go through the Kickstarter program, then you, you position yourself to, to get, to maximize the value that you get from one-on-one -on -one coaching. And then that saves the coach time and energy, it saves the client time, energy, and money. Yep. If somebody wants to get, oh, totally. Cool. If somebody wants to learn more or get involved with your Kickstart program, how would they get in touch with you? Well, if you you can send me a message uh, on Instagram and I respond at Dr. Cashy. You can go to trevorcashynutrition.com. You can you can Google my name. I make it really hard to. Uh, uh, to avoid getting in contact with kickstart material <laughs> so find me i would love to talk to you uh, and we talked we talked to every single person that signs up at least three times so to costa's uh, point about like that he brought up about uh, having a good fit like we have quite a few team members and then we have you know you you talk to a few people to make sure that like does this, does this match? Does this help solve the problem I want to solve? Do I, can I stand the people that I talk to because I will continue talking to them after? Okay. So we have, we have a little bit of an interview intake process to make sure like, do you even want to do this? Do you like us? Do you have a problem with us? Right. What problem do you want to solve? That sort of thing. So you can, you can look me up uh, and you can go to trevorcashnutrition.com and both of those places will get you in touch with, with an actual human that will speak to you. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Where do you notice that? Sort of... Yeah, no, that's perfect. I, oh, okay, I would say, cool. I would say um, 
curious question is where do you see most of your clients coming from in terms of the phase? Are they novices when it comes to weight loss? Are they inter intermediates or are they more just been trying to do stuff and it doesn't work? And the reason I'm asking too is I think with your approach, it's more of a probably takes more time to implement because of the necessary data and the way to realistically do it right versus the people that are still get suckered into the the guy on YouTube, the girl on YouTube, hey, 30 days, you learn 50 pounds. Excellent question. So frankly, uh, I position myself as uh, somebody's last option. Yeah. Uh, you And especially when I worked on my own, because I do zero marketing now, aside from like now I've, I've started posting on Instagram the last couple of weeks. And even then I just talk about silly language stuff, really. Uh, I do zero marketing aside from like once in a while, I talk to people like you, we mostly operate by referral. And so in, in that regard, uh, because of, you know, the, the time, attention, investment in both time and resources, like chances are you'll go, mm, I'll try all of this other stuff first. So to actually, excuse me, to, act, to actually prove that they have bullshit stuff and then, and then, okay, then I, I will try this other thing. So to to act truthful uh most of the people that end up joining with us they've they've tried everything else already uh because of the time energy and resources it takes and we 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 act honest about that up front mm -hmm. and for people with limited experience that would scare anybody away right. you know like that makes sense why would i want to do something that looks so punishing well it makes sense after you punished yourself a bunch of times over here first <laughs> True. Okay. So just as, as a, as a percentage of people, uh, it mostly comes from, from people that have tried a bunch of things already. Some of them very successful. Okay. We, I, I will just as easily take a good looking man and turn him into a freak of nature. Okay. I spent a lot of time doing that. Okay. And some people that have, that have worked their whole lives having serious problems with medical conditions or weight problems or whatever, uh, that have, have had a chronic problems for a long time. And so where you exist on the spectrum there, because I only focus at least initially on violent execution of basic things, the champion gets better and the novice gets better, yes. <laughs> period. Yeah. And so the more advanced you get, the easier it gets to, the easier it gets to kind of lose track and start trying to implement a bunch of stuff. But really, like people, like champions, well, they just they just do the basics as violently as possible in as many places as they can. <laughs> and so, even for people at a very high level, narrowing the focus back to like, what problem do you want to solve? What basic things contribute to resolving the problem? Let's do that and do the living shit out of it. <laughs> and then they just they just hit the gas a little bit harder because of the previous experience they have. In reality, the principles stay the same. Like the question about how you know how do we how do we change the energy storage? Well, you change it in the same way with every person. Yeah. You just and some people just have more or less hassle when they do it and when it comes to doing it in real life. And so that that then gives us the coaching starts there. Because mm -hmm. I take the position, you already know what to do. You already know to eat vegetables, you already know to sleep, you already know to walk around the block, you already know to, to do all these basic things. And things that happen in life get in the way of doing those things. And so to hire someone for them to tell you to eat more vegetables and walk around the block, I just consider that a kick in the nuts because you already know that stuff. Or yeah. kicking the gonads to make it more PC, I suppose. Okay, since we all have gonads for the most part. That 
uh, I respect the fact that Lisa already made it this far. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'll tell Lisa to eat three servings of broccoli. Shut up, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so you, like, but if you look at the advice around, they go eat your vegetables and walk around the block. And I just see that so insulting to somebody like Lisa, who clearly has made it 50 years and knows to eat a green thing every once in a while. So does that mean that, that Lisa has a green thing limitation? I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, hopefully that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And I know we're coming to the end of our hour, but I have to just get this in. And it's not about politics. I said, we, you know, we don't sure. want to talk about politics. However, the political nature of our world right now, how could we not discuss communication and this divide of, understanding or finding commonality and you know both of us have read you know looked into a lot of your stuff and I find it amazing the way that you're able to articulate a way a better way of communicating so if you don't mind and have the time do you want to just kind of dive into communication and how words matter with friends business okay and people with different opinions okay so I can I can start this out with just the blanket statement that people would benefit from understanding how to have a Socratic dialogue. Will I get into what that means? No. However, if you do have an interest, go look it up. Okay, I'll yeah. just say that now. Otherwise, we can talk about that all day in the form of Socratic dialogue. Okay, I can give you some basic pointers that, you know, talking with people in different countries, very different beliefs and you know, spending time in that part of the world, okay, seeing things happen in real life, talking with different members of, of our team, right, different colors, different religions, different, all, different upbringings, different all sorts of stuff uh, that I have noticed that a vast majority of the time, we agree on, we agree on things and use different words. Yeah. And by using different words, it makes it look like we believe different things. Okay, I will just, Yeah. I would say a vast majority of the time people argue about something they actually agree on. Okay, like they, and that, that like, <laughs> every time I say that my stomach churns, okay? And so this actually happened uh, when I got to spend some time with the team, we had a, we had a summit uh, about a week ago and, uh, one of the team members asked, he goes, hey, man, do you believe in vibes and energy and, and that sort of stuff? And as a scientist, like, okay, red flags popping all over the place, right? And, uh, and I realized at that point that, like, I probably believe in exactly what he believes in. I just describe it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so we started the conversation out that way because he expected me to kick him in the nuts as a scientist because he knew that he brought up some sort of mystical stuff, okay? Uh, and I said, I probably believe the exact same thing and I use different words to describe it. And that, that changed our relationship on a fundamental level just by making that statement. Yeah. Because what does it do next? It prompts like, okay, what, when you say vibes and energy, what does that, like, what does that mean to you? And then when he says that, I can, I can now relate it to things that I understand and say, okay, we actually do agree on these levels. Okay. And you actually describe what I would call things happening in the past, influencing the way I behave in the present. And now we have something that we can now, we have a platform in which to formulate a, a more extensive relationship in the future. Because if someone gives off bad vibes, we all, have a, we all have an understanding to dramatize on purpose of what that means. 
So I take things a little more analytical. And to me, if someone gives you bad vibes, that means something about the context has now, has now prompted you to behave as if something punishing will occur because something like that happened in the past. If a person gives you bad vibes, that means sometime then you had a punishing experience uh, in, in a situation similar enough to this. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And, and so once, once I tried to take it down, to, I try and like divorced from the person's education or intelligence, I try to take it down to the fourth grade level of language of, okay, something happened then and it affects how you might act now. Mm-hmm. Vibes. Yeah. Okay. And I think stated in that way, most people would agree. Why do I think most people would agree? Because it defines learning. It's like the uh, one of your close friends talks about this a lot with your watches content all the time too. And the big thing about uh, he says is the terms of a contract are are so key, and that's why twenty pages, thirty pages before they even go into a contract is like this means this, this word means that, that means that, that means this because you need to know what the things are that we're even talking about even mean in the first place. And I don't know, that's where my brain kind of like went to when you said that. It's like yes. Well, we need to know what this means first. What does whatever mean? And then, yes, then later in the contract, you can read a sentence. And if you're confused, what does it mean first? And then implement it in the-, the Correct. Uh, so the rule, rule number one of effective one-on-one communication, well, I just saw rule number one because I say it first, okay? Uh, coming to terms. So you want to talk about this. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And a vast majority of the time, you will have trouble explaining what it means. And to me, I find having trouble explaining what something means and and having frequent arguments and emotional disturbance way too convenient of a correlation. Mm. No, no, that's not what I mean. What do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so coming to terms ahead of time, like we have, important words that we use in this conversation. And so I can, I can put it together in a semi-technical way by saying we have a vocabulary and a terminology. With vocabulary, it means we have, we have this list of face noises, okay? We have a list of face noises. Terminology really means how the noise affects my behavior. In other words, what the word means, mm-hmm. okay? So you, we, I can, we can use, we can drop F-bombs and have it mean a many different things. So, so fuck as one word might exist as 50 terms. Yeah. Right, pleasure, pain, punishment, saying goodbye, saying hello, like I could go on forever. And so just the, diff- just the difference in understanding between vocabulary and terminology makes a huge difference because otherwise it makes it easy to default to the assumption that one face noise means one thing at all times. When real life laughs at that demand, mm-hmm. okay? Like an insult to one person turns into a compliment to another. I like to call dogs creatures and I called a lady's dog a creature and she got offended. I'm like, oh, I love little creatures. He's not a creature. Well, like, okay. It would have helped if we came to terms ahead of time that when I say creature, I actually mean to compliment because I just see creature as a living thing, like straight out of the Bible, <laughs> right? 
So what is a way, because it's difficult to, you know, in a, in a spontaneously have these conversations and, 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 not, and think that someone would be offended by creatures. So yeah. at that point where one is offended, what's the next best way to overcome that? without becoming oh, divided. Oh, okay. I love I love honesty as the best policy. Tell me what you would prefer to call your dog. I use creature as a compliment, so tell me what you would prefer. Yep. Does that mean you have to do what they prefer? No. It still gives you an idea of what they prefer if you care to continue having a conversation with this person. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> otherwise, what option do you have? Well, yeah, it's a creature. No, it's not. Well, we have vague terminology here. <laughs> yep. And what so we actually we... both agree that I love these little, this little fluffy thing that runs around. We actually agree. <laughs> and, and we have a problem with the, with the use of, of creature as a term. Like we have a conflict with creature as a term and both recognize creature as a word. See that, like, see that difference? Mm -hmm. I, get, I get a little nuanced here because I talk to you. Uh, yeah. Talking to anybody else in like a daily conversation might come out different. Right. Uh, just, just it's a weird, like the level that I take these things that... For, for regular interactions, like, can you really manage that? Well, you can just speak generically a lot of times. Like, your dog looks pretty to me. You know, <laughs> see spot run, Jane does work. I mean, you can, you can really just go to that. Like, that, that, uh, that ends up taking more work than necessary. And to Costa's point, like, body language and stuff like that and tonality helps to bridge the gaps. Yep. Uh, from a cultural standpoint, because then you have enough context clues to like, okay, this person actually means it as a good thing. Right. Uh, if you, and, if you have, no, keep going. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, if you, if you had the opportunity to give a speech to the citizens of the United States of America, what would be your elevator speech for us to all get along? Oh, good. How's grief. that one? Good grief. Uh, what problem do we want to solve? Uh, I would just, I would probably start it with that. Uh, I, I can tell you that, so you ask what, what essentially, what generic advice would I give to, to have, to make it so people have a more positive disposition towards one another on a daily basis? Even even if it's not positive, Trevor, if we could Rel be relatively kind, speaking, kind, yeah. yeah. Where where's the? How do we become a kinder America where we can um, we <laughs> okay. don't have okay. to accept differences, but we have to be more tolerant of differences. Okay. You bring up a great point. Do we have to? No. No. Okay, and just by virtue of placing the demand on everyone, you create the resistance. Just as just as one way that like we have to get along. No, we don't. Right. Or else what? Like, so do we really have to get along under all circumstances or any circumstance ever? Strictly speaking, no. If we take if we take the sort of uh, language pattern approach that we started with in the beginning, we can say that I would prefer we all got along. And, and so even just going from a great, great opportunity to segue into how to resolve demandingness, should, must, have to, need, et cetera, even just taking something as a demand, which I consider almost every time automatic, I just, I just really just, I label it as a distortion automatically. 
Does something have to happen? No, worst case you die, in which case the world still moves on anyway, okay? So to take the stoical approach to demanding this right. year, that does anything have to occur a certain way? No. And by virtue of placing a demand on yourself, placing a demand on the environment, placing a demand on other people, you already shoot yourself in the foot in terms of what probability do I have of creating an emotional problem? Just by stating something like we really have to get to get to, to get along better. Well, that alone puts a demand on other people and yourself and the universe all at the same time, which sets you up to get upset when people, when people have conflict, just as one way to look at it. Mm -hmm. We can, however, probably agree on a more regular basis that I would really prefer more people got along most of the time. Like, can we agree that the world, the world uh, would, would have, have more conveniences Right, I use these sort of silly technical words on purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, the world would have more conveniences if more of us got along more of the time. I would really prefer that. What would you prefer? I would also prefer that. Instead of it has to happen, people must treat each other nicely. Because we have a lot of that. We have just as much militant uh, positivists. <laughs> yeah. and, and to me, that just contributes to the issue. Like we all have to get along or else. Like, look, you know, anti-bullying, for instance. You just bully someone else. Mm -hmm. Even labeling yourself as anti-anything, just that sort of, like, that, that goes into another sort of monster. Uh, even, even just the demand that some people have for us to get along versus the demand that we all act warmongering and angry really mean the same thing to me because they have the same result uh, when, when played out to the, to the extremes. Right, more okay? division. Yeah. And so at the very least, we can come to terms that I would prefer that more people got along more of the time. Okay. And just having that preference of like, just going from a demand to a preference, I think makes, makes a freakish difference on emotional stability and therefore uh, behavioral consistency. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or, or action consistency. So that the probability of that you will follow through with something that you say, I think often operates as a function of your emotional status. So since all this stuff happens at the same time, when a lot of people think like, well, you think a thought and then you have a feeling and then you do it like, no, it all happens at once. And, and really, I, I really just object to the idea that thoughts change what we do because, because if I walk down the hallway and I say drop like a sack of potatoes a thousand times, do I drop like a sack of potatoes? No, no. <laughs> and so this conflated influence of thoughts, like, like just conflating the, no, confusing the, the influence that thoughts have on behaving and making it so linear like that confuses uh, thoughts as behaviors of their own rather than thoughts as influencing behaviors. Does that follow? <laughs> Yeah. Since I classify thinking as a behavior, that just means I can do two behaviors at once. It means I can walk. It means I can pat myself on the head. And it means I can think fall down like a sack of potatoes. I can do all those things at the same time because they exist as separate behaviors rather than, well, I think about walking down the hallway and then I feel like walking down the hallway and then I act like walking down the like just even just at, at the most basic level of conceptual analysis, it fails. <laughs> Yeah. And people, people accept it because it makes things convenient. When you put it in context, all these things happen at the same time and you can have all, all conflicting things happen at the same time too, which therefore I think makes it easier to describe this or rather 
more valid to describe them all as separate behaviors happening at once rather than one thing leading to another, which eventually leads to a behavior. I was gonna say, I think like the most common way to like look at this and what the overarching thing is, it's like you have two people, person one thinks this, person two thinks that and they meet and it's like, hey, I think this and the other person's like, no, I think this. And then I think that is probably where it can go a lot of different ways. Is it, is it, is it, is it anger? Like, how dare you think that? Or like, what would then be like the way to kind of come to, I don't know, it has to be common grounds of like, hey, happy. Yeah. How do we like, yes. I think it's respect. I, I, I feel or? your pain there. I feel your pain there. And this goes down to the sort of like age old advice of if you want to change the world, change yourself sort of a thing. Because if you go into a conversation already having demands of what the other person does, you set yourself up to get upset before you even speak. Right. And that happens a lot, a vast majority of the time. And so look at things like deservingness or, um, uh, or forgiveness. Things of that nature really just imply demands of some other person or the universe to behave a certain way. So... By saying I deserve something or they deserve something, it means that they met some arbitrary standard and now the universe must pay out or else. And so we have a lot of these uh, implicit and explicit demands or rules just, as, just baked into us as part of our culture. And so you talk about a systematic problem. And so resolving those sorts of issues before they start on a random encounter basis, I consider frankly a, a futile sort of task. Uh, you can, however, have people that work on themselves and then eventually find another person that has also worked on themselves and have uh, and have a have a connection where they can object object to each other in, in almost every way and still have an amazing friendship. And Alex Hormozzi and I fall into that category. So in a big in a big picture, we agree on basically everything. Okay, we we wrestle for hours at a time. At how to get to that thing. And so, like, I, I joke that I, I, I have a job as Alex Formosi's part-time sparring partner, that we, we, like, we, we agree on almost nothing. <laughs> and for that reason, we have such a strong friendship because we both row in the same direction. Mm -hmm. We both agree on the outcome that we want to get, and we wrestle like hell about how to get there. And, and to me, that ends, up, that ends up helping a lot too of, well, what problem do we want to solve? So right. I'll spend a lot of time, like, what problem do we want to solve? What makes it a problem? How do you know what these words mean? Do I know what these words mean? Have we come to terms on, like, do we both agree we, we have a problem to solve for one? How do, we just, how do we describe the problem? Okay, what do these words mean that we use to describe the problem? See how exhausting this gets? <laughs> okay. It also builds lifelong friendships that make massive differences. Right. And it sounds like you're, you, you, you focus on the end result, which is your common, that common need, want to resolve the problem and not who's right or wrong in yeah, right the conversations like, to get yes. to the bigger picture. Yeah. So a, a large um, overarching motif in our conversations in general has to do with the dialectical tension between utility and validity. Okay? Yeah. And in an ideal situation, you have both at the same time. And until such time, you, you sort of wax and wane uh, to leaning towards, especially with, with Alex, towards utility first. Okay, how do we get the most use out of this thing? And then over time, we will figure out what, what makes it tick and why. 
And I have the opposite approach. I give two shits about whether something works. I care more about why, <laughs> why something happens because I take a scientific approach. With the scientist, something already exists and then you try and figure out what makes it tick, okay? And, and, and your, it also sounds like you're, none of this is personal. You're not, neither one of you are personally looking to win. You're looking to solve the problem. So oh, okay. it goes back to, right, goes back to, you wanna fix the blame or do you wanna fix the problem? Fair you're, enough. Like, you're looking for an outcome. And, and in those communications, you're learning. And that's, that's exciting. Yes, and to your point, I actually would, would say that I, I, maybe he would agree, maybe not. I, I would venture that he would, that we take it the most personal. Oh. The absolute most personal. Like can, in my opinion, can you get more intimate than that? In my opinion, not. For like, really. Of the sort of relationship you can have with a person that, at that level of strength for that level of time to accomplish this, this many things, I consider that like really I mean, aside from, you know, the poetic romantic, like, oh, I put my penis in you. Okay. Like the peak level of intimacy, that sort of relationship. And so to me, I consider it the most personal thing because we have, when we have these conversations with each other, we have zero secrets. We hold nothing back. We lay it all out. And when you do lay it all out, you can figure out how the pieces fit together. And I just see that as probably one of the most intimate things a person can do. So insofar as I consider that the most personal thing a person can do. Okay. Does that, but, but does you're, that follow? But at least it, it does, terminology. But, but it's not, but neither one of you are, and maybe this is where words matter, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. It, neither one of you are, so what I'm saying is taking it personally, like you don't yeah. feel offended. But yes, I agree that level of communication and that depth of communication is definitely vulnerable and personal. But yes. you guys aren't taking it as if you aren't, and it sounds like you're both hear each other, but you're you're not stuck in your ways. You're open to listening. You don't feel personally attacked or less than because Alex has a different opinion, right? So you you guys are probably never going to agree just because of, of, of a way to get there because you have different brains and you're very analytical and scientific and then his brain is operating in a different way. So in those conversations, the learning and acceptance and understanding, I imagine is huge. Yes. Therefore, you get to a solution that will actually probably solve the problem. Yes, yes. And he, he, acts, very, he acts very analytical and scientific as well. It just comes from a different context. So he he has obviously tremendous business acumen, and he treats that very scientific and analytical. Right. I come from shooting lasers at green sludge in a basement five fifty feet underground. Okay, and so even still, like it still goes from scientific and analytical, and just what we study. Then, then the context of what we study ends up overlapping in an interesting way. And so do we yell and scream? Absolutely. I do it more than him. Okay. Really, we end up, we end up yelling and screaming at the problem. Right. More than we scream at each other. So yes. I might yell with him in the room. He might yell with I me think, in the room. And wouldn't that be a, a nice way for people of oh, different yes. opinions to interact, right? Not, a, not, not demanding it, but wouldn't it be nice if we could have the problem here that we're arguing about realize that it's outside of us and that we can all have these differences of opinion. Yes. Um, but let's not, let's not pull it in 
and make it a part of us and have that deeper divide. Yes, correct. And you bring up an interesting point that also ties into like, we really have to get along. Okay. And so uh, I'll, I'll say something sort of controversial for funsies that if you look at the sort of relationship, like you just mentioned that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll throw the, the Alex and Trevor relationship in there, the sort of relationship we have of, of competent people in a room solving a problem. How many of those relationships does it actually take to keep the world turning? Very few. Very few? Very few. Well, relative to the amount of total humans, right? Okay, yeah. Okay, because we have the gift of, and luxury of culture where, yes. where we produce information and it gets stored to people can access later. And so really, if you now take this throughout history of people getting together solving problems, we, we have what, like a couple hundred people in written history. Yeah. Now, do I put myself in that caliber? Fuck no, no. I, I'm, more, I'm more to the point of like, yeah, it would make life much more convenient if people got along. Does that make it a contingency of human surviving? No. No. No, no. And from there, now, I think that actually gives us an opening of like, okay, like we will survive and reproduce Let's just fine. Let's just figure out ways to get, a, to get along a little bit better instead of we have to get along or else everything will turn into hellfire and flames and we'll all die forever. No, because Elon Musk will just shoot off to Mars and figure it out over there. Okay, so to, to your, just like, it's just a way to like kind of take the demandingness out to the extreme that uh, does it really have to operate this way? No, do, do some, does it, does it really behoove humans as a species to have at least some problem solving capacity uh, with this level of intimacy, duh. Okay. Okay. Because uh, you might you might have equal opposite issues if everybody took freaking five hours to have a simple conversation. Right. So you're right. like, I, I sympathize with your plight. I also object because I do that for a living. Yeah. Uh, I, that I, I, I spend my time <laughs> knowing smart people. No, I, that's great. I like what we saying. agree. We agree. Yeah. We I just agree. like let's yes. break it. Yeah. We, let's oh. break it. And so I have those conversations a lot. A lot of the conversations I have with Alex work that way. Like, I, I already agree with what you say. I will still break it because now you have to defend it. Uh, because if, if, if you break it or I break it, that means even if I agree, you got to change it. Now, yeah. I'll, I'll put the demand in there as a joke. Like, yeah. I mean, you could, you, could, you could just keep something that sucks. I mean, you can decide to do that if you want, right? Uh, so we, even if we both agree, people will get to agreeing and stopping. And Alex and I, as soon as we agree on something, now the work starts. Because people confuse agreement and understanding. In a well, vast majority of situations. That's a good one. Yeah. 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 When people agree, one. they've solved it. And yeah. with the relationship I have with Alex, once we agree, now we can start solving it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And that just tells you just the amount of uh, the how exhausting and laborious of a process this gets to turn into, and you end up learning to have a love of this sort of Socratic dialogue because it does turn into like you really come up with a rational way to solve very real problems. Yeah, and it just takes labor and yeah. it sucks and it, like a very skill of its own, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so uh, for those two things, I will leave with the demandingness aspect of things. The other distortions I consider derivative. Okay. If you can manage demandingness, then emotional stability just, you really like, you do this. 
Okay, and then, then the difference between understanding and agreeing, because a lot of people uh, will agree on something, but they but what you agree on and what you agree on, they mean different things. So if we both if we both agree on pro-choice and choice means two different things, then does the agreement matter? No. Right. No, it means nothing. It means worse than nothing because then it looks like you betrayed each other. Okay. Mm -hmm. So coming to terms on the important words. Uh, so that you can have a fruitful conversation. You know, what problem do you want to solve? Okay, Th that problem has important words. Do we know what these important words mean? And uh, maintaining the uh, uh, a hold on demandingness. Mm -hmm. And then realizing that even if you agree on something, you still might both have it wrong. And so That's once right. you agree, then the work starts of let's break it. Yeah. We, ha we have an answer. Do we have a solution? <laughs> Like, Another interesting point. Yeah. Have a, do we have a systematic process that we can go through that when we put it through this amount of situations, it still comes out, it still comes out shiny and new. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it comes down to, you know, using the scientific method and, and as, as a conversational tool. Okay, we have, we agreed on this. How does this work? Well, let's put it in this situation and see where it might break. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, do I have an answer on the level of populations? Uh, I, I believe I have some suggestions on what would help. They just, they, I will tell you that most systems or all systems that govern large amounts of humans depend exclusively on punishing contingencies to manage behavior. They depend on punishing people to getting, to getting them to comply. And, and so long as culture and, and governing organizations and, and other lower organizations and family units, they depend on punishing each other to get compliance. Like to me that just, unless we solve that, the rest of it turns into whatever. Yeah. They, we have exclusive dependence all, or near exclusive dependence on punishment to, 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 um, to, to direct behavior. Yeah. And, and what does punishing do in a real world situation? it teaches a person to avoid the punishment. And so I take the position that punish, punishment creates criminals. Yeah. And I can use a dog example where like if a dog jumps on the counter and you, you know, like you swat the dog off, yell at the dog, kick the dog off, whatever, whatever you do. And then a day later, you'll see that the dog jumped on the counter to get your food. You call the dog sneaky. The stupidest thing I've ever heard anthropomorphizing an animal like that. You literally just taught it to avoid you. Does it avoid the jumping on the counter to get your food? No, it avoids getting kicked by you. <laughs> what does that mean? It means it jumps on the counter when you leave the room. And then you have the gall to count it to call it sneaky. <laughs> okay. This applies to pigeons up to people. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so, so what, what happens as a culture? We come up with, with gnarlier and more sophisticated arrays of punishing contingencies as we develop. The amount of laws that we have and the ways to enforce those laws goes like this every day, which tells us what? Punishment, although effective, has its limitations. That's right. Okay, and so I see this as a function of how much do we punish people to get them to comply, okay? And if you have a whole population of people that, that live, literally live to avoid punishment, then these sorts of piddly things, and I say that from a relative standpoint, these piddly things you bring up, happen as a side effect of living a life that avoids punishment. Wow. You do whatever you take to avoid punishment, period. Yeah. 
the bar. And so like, I, I like this, I get emotionally overwhelmed. You want to come over for dinner and continue talking? This is yeah. fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that, that, that weighs heavy on me sometimes. Wow. Um, yeah. That I, I so deeply also care to resolve the problem that you present when it derives from the basic, or really just the basic premise that the world at large depends on punishment to direct behavior. Yeah. And like, wow. I get sad because of that sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and these, these, you know, pettily disagreements with people argue, even I even consider like Supreme Court decide, I call that, I just consider that stuff trivial, s- stupid, because that doesn't matter when you, when you run the world on punishment. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a great take. And so when people freak out, they freak out because now they have to find new ways to avoid the punishing consequences thrust upon them. I would freak out too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'll end there. That, uh, that punishment causes more problems than it solves. Know, yes. know what, when you speak, when you use words, know what they mean. And, yes. Uh, and look at, look at the demands that you put on yourself, others, and the universe and see if, if you can make them preferences instead. Dr. Trevor Cashy, this has been fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for, Thank you. for, for all of this time and all of those incredible, wise words and thoughts and philosophies. It makes a difference. Thank you. Thank you. I, I spent my life doing it. Uh, so wow. I'll take it where I can get it. Yeah. No, this is uh, play, this play is with your words and we will play back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort, and we'll catch you in the next episode.